And how do you know it's Christmas season? Well, the way you know it is a couple of things, for me, in my mind at least. Number one, the radio um, has Christmas music on, right? And number two, the streets, like, streets have Christmas decorations, right? Right after Thanksgiving, in, in, the, in the lobby of my building, there's a Christmas tree, right? So, and all the streets are decorated. And three, that you know it's Christmas time because, you know, person from, a salvation, person from the Salvation Army comes and in front of Giant or anywhere, and they ring the bell, and they want your donations, right? So Salvation Army, so people who ring the bell to get donations during Christmas time are people from the Salvation Army. And Salvation Army was started, by, started in the early 1900s by this guy named William Booth was a Methodist minister, right? So William Booth, I love Wikipedia. William Booth started the Salvation Army, right, in the, in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s. And the mission of the Salvation Army is to bring, bring the message of Jesus Christ and charitable donations to the poor and forgotten people of society, right? That's, that's the mission. So they're bringing the word of the gospel and the love of the gospel, right, through the poor people in London, okay? William Booth, when he was retiring from his position, um, in, in, in one of his last speeches, um, he, was, he's, he's, he was giving the warning to the Christian church in the turn of the, turn of the 20th century. And this is the warning that he gave to the church. He says, the chief danger that confronts the coming century will be religion without the Holy Ghost, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, heaven without hell. There's a lot of things to unpack here, what William Booth just said. But what I want to focus on is his warning about Churches practicing Christianity without Christ. Right? What does it mean? And I think, what, did, what does William Booth mean when he says churches have to be warned against doing Christianity without Christ? His warning is, it is very tempting to build a religion called Christianity without the central mission of Jesus Christ as its core. Greg is here, and when I, when I look at Greg, I always think about Iron Man. And in Iron Man, the core of Iron Man's power is the center of his, ener- center of his armor, the energy piece, right? Thanks, Greg, for being here, right? The core of Christianity is the mission of Jesus Christ. But it is, but it is very unfortunate that I think William Booth's warning has come true. Because even though the central core of Christianity should be about the mission of Jesus Christ, many churches build Christianity on, on things that are not, where Jesus Christ is not the center. Many churches during this Christmas season, and even I did it too, will warn their congregation about, you know, don't get, don't get trapped, don't, don't lose the meaning of Christmas, right? Don't get sucked in by the materialism of the world, right? Don't get sucked in by the 
manufactured, man-made, you know, Christmas mood of the world. Right? I was listening to the Christian music the other day. So, like, you know, I have satellite radio, you know, because I'm balling, right? And so, and that Christmas music channel always plays Christmas music, right? And I was, I was like, actually listening to the lyrics of it. When I was coming back from I was actually listening to the lyrics of it. And if you listen to the lyrics of all these different Christian Christmas music, if an alien would come down and ask what a Christmas is, and if they would listen to the Christmas music, the aliens would have no idea what Christian Christmas is about. Christmas could either be about, like, your girlfriend leaving you, right? Or about, I don't know, some kind of snowstorm or something, right? It's nothing, the Christmas music tells you nothing about what Christianity is. So pastors warn their congregation not not to get sucked up, sucked in in this manufactured, man-made culture of Christmas. And they'll say, do not lose the meaning of Christmas. But I think the issue is not the Christians lose the meaning of Christmas during the holiday season. The greater issue is Christians don't really know the meaning of Christianity in their normal everyday lives. Not y'all. Y'all are great, right? But people outside of our church, many people, they don't really know what the center of their faith is. For example, if I say to someone other than an embrace member, right, who is Jesus Christ? They'll say, son of God. And I go, what does that mean? They go, oh. I say, what is the gospel? The gospel is Jesus Christ died for me to save me from my sins. I go, fantastic. What is sin that he saved you from? Most, of, most people will go, oh. I can ask an average Christian out there, what is the gospel? And a lot of them cannot, couldn't really tell me what the gospel is. Can't you see? The mission of Jesus Christ is a center. Who Jesus Christ is, what he has come to do, should be the center. But people are really unfamiliar with the message of Jesus Christ. And they build their Christianity into something based on something else. Another satellite radio channel that I always listen, frequently listen to, because I'm a ball, once again, I'm a baller, right, is Joe Austin Radio. I listen to Joe Austin Radio occasionally. It's one of my set radio stations, right? Why do I listen to Joe Austin? Sometimes because, you know, I need to feel good about myself, right? But what is Joe Austin's ministry really about? Joe Austin is not a prosperity gospel preacher. Joe Austin is not saying... If God wants, me, God wants me to give me a jet. That's not Joe Osteen. Okay? Joe Osteen, I'm sorry. Joe Osteen's ministry is God loves you, and the way that God expresses his love for you is that you're going to be successful. You're, you're going to heal from your cancer. This is going to be a new season of your life, which, which, is, which is going to prosper. That's his message in a nutshell. God loves you. And the way that you know that God loves you is that he's going to make you successful, make you healthy, make your problems go away. And you may judgmentally sit there and judge Joe Austin about his message. 
But let's be honest here, shall we? Many Christians want that kind of Christianity. Their view of God is precisely very similar to what Joe Alstein has to offer. You want to believe in a God who will make you successful, who will make you overcome your obstacles, who will make your road flat and pleasant. Many churches build their Christianity on that. Once again, the core of Christianity is the mission of Jesus Christ. But we build Christianity on top of something else. Look, recently, there are two high-profile pastors who have fallen from grace. Here we go again. Right? These are two very prominent pastors. I'm not going to tell them, I'm not going to tell you who they are. But one guy fell from grace because... He did a bad thing 20 years ago, 20 years ago. And the bad thing that you think that I'm th- that, that you think of you think about is what he did, right? Like sexually immoral. The second guy fell from grace, not because of sexual immorality, but he fell from grace because he was very mean to his staff. He had a high turnover. And he was a very he, he, he said, this is, this, this is his words. He used to silence his opposition by preaching about them during his sermon. He weaponized his sermon against them. Right? It's bad. So I want him here is not to diminish them or judge them or anything like that. But my concern for the, but I always had concern for these two guys, even before they fell. Because one guy's ministry, the guy who had a sexually immoral relationship, his ministry was primarily based on God's personal revelation to him. He preached a 90-minute sermon. You're welcome, by the way. He preached a 90-minute sermon. And his 90-minute sermon was all about what God has revealed to him. It wasn't expounding the Bible. It's about what God has revealed to him. The guy who was really mean to his staff, his Christianity was he wanted to build a Christian culture. He wanted to, I don't know, he wanted to build a Christian movement that is very highly intellectual Christian movement. Their ministry was based on something other than the person and mission of Jesus Christ. It is everywhere, you see. Let me ask you honestly. What is the foundation? What is this Christianity? that We all identify ourselves as Christians. But why do you identify yourself as a Christian? What is the version of Christianity that you're built on? You know? So this Advent season, we go back to the very mission of person and mission of Jesus Christ. The question is, how do you know what the mission of Jesus, what the who the person and the, what the mission of Jesus Christ is? How do you know? How do you know? Look at his name. The mission of what he has come to do 
is in the name of Jesus Christ. Right? Look, you know the story, what we just read. Right? Joseph was engaged to Mary. Mary, but before they had, you know, they got married. They were engaged before the actual marriage ceremony. Mary was conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph misunderstood and rightfully so, right? understandably so, right? He, he heard news that his bride-to-be was pregnant, right? Because Joseph was a just man, rather than dragging her to the town elders where they would discipline her and, you know, you know what I mean? He tried, to quietly, he tried to quietly divorce her. But the very night when he was about to divorce his wife, the angel of the Lord says, Joseph, do not divorce Mary, for she is with child. And, you, and the child was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and, you shall, call, and you, shall, you shall call his name what? Jesus. And what does the name of Jesus mean? He will save his people from his sin, from their sins. Not his sins. Oops, that's, you know, blasphemy. The name of Jesus is he shall save his people from their sins. This is to fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah where it says a a virgin child will will be born and, and the child's name should be Emmanuel, God with us. So Jesus' name, Jesus is given two names in the passage that we just read. He shall save his people from his, from his sins, and two, Emmanuel, God is with us. What does the word Emmanuel mean, God is with us mean? The word comes from, I think, Isaiah chapter 7. Is that Isaiah chapter 7? I hope it's Isaiah chapter 7. Yeah, let's say it's Isaiah chapter 7. Oh man, I, I wrote it down. Isaiah chapter, I'm right. It's Isaiah chapter 7, right? Verse 23 is quoting Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, God is describing, God is promising the nation of Israel who will be invaded by foreign enemies. That the foreign enemies, though for a season, will overwhelm you. In the end, God will save you. And the sign that God will save you is that there will be a virgin and she will give birth. And that, birth, and that child's name should be Emmanuel. So the word Emmanuel means God with us. But that word connotates God's salvation for his people. Do you understand? The word Emmanuel symbolizes, signifies, one, God will save Israel from their enemies. And two, God will once again dwell with his people. Israel was allowed, foreign invaders were allowed to be, God allowed foreign invaders to invade Israel because of Israel's unfaithfulness. And because Israel was unfaithful, the presence of the Lord left Israel. Presence of the Lord left Israel, foreigners invade. You got me? Capisce? They were unfaithful, God's presence left, foreigners invade. 
But when God says, Emmanuel, I will be with you, he's saying, I will come to your rescue, number one. And number two, I will dwell with you again. So the name Emmanuel also signifies God's saving work. The purpose of Jesus Christ is in his name. His name is, he will save us from our sins, he will save us from our sins, and he will dwell with us. That's what Jesus has come to do, and that is what he's doing right now. I know a lot of us want the Joel Osteen version of Jesus Christ, but, Joel, but God is not promising the Joel Osteen version of Jesus Christ. God is saying, Jesus' primary mission is to save you from your sins and to dwell with you. That's God's promise through Jesus Christ. Then, in order for us to understand the mission of Jesus Christ, we have to understand sin. We can't understand his mission unless we understand sin. The rest of the sermon will be devoted to a clinical analysis of sin. I find sin very fascinating because sin is very real. The reason why I'm a Christian is the Bible's depiction of sin mirrors reality. And the Bible's prescription of how you get out of sin, I think it's the only way out. I'm a Christian because the Bible's depiction of humanity through their sin is the most accurate depiction of the human heart. I'm a Christian because God's prescription of how you get out of sin through Jesus Christ, in my, in, in my view, is the only way a person gets out of sin. Do you understand? That's why I'm a Christian. And so in order for us to understand what Jesus has come to do, let's, de- let's go down to sin. Let's ex- examine sin. In your mind, when I say sin, you say not doing drugs, not listening to rock and roll music, and not drinking, and not having sex before marriage. If I do that, I'm good. Right, guys? Don't listen to worldly music. Don't do drugs. Don't smoke. Don't have sex before marriage. And if you're good, then you're, 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 you're not a sinner. Au contraire. That's a very, 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 like, grade school, like, preschool level of understanding of sin. Let's examine the complex, and let's do a complex analysis of sin. Let's go. In the Bible, there's like three words that describes man's, um, whatchamacallit, negative relationship with God. Right? The first word commonly used is inequity. Inequity, by the way, I got this from the Bible Project, guys. I love them. Inequity means immoral behavior. The thing, smoking, premarital sex, immoral behavior is inequity. Okay? Another word for sin, not, not another, word, another word to describe bad human behavior is transgression. Transgression is breaking of trust, breaking of a covenant. So when, 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 when a person has an affair 
with someone other than, I mean, when a person has an affair and has adultery, that is described as a transgression because you're breaking an oath that you've made before God and, the, and, your, and your spouse. Inequity is immoral behavior, right? Transgression is breaking of covenants and oaths. Sin means something else. The Hebrew word for sin is kata, and the Greek word for sin is haramatia. And the word for sin basically means missing the mark, missing the goal. Right? So there is a goal, there's a mission, and you failed it. That's what it is. Example is, if there's a marksman, right? If the marksman misses his mark, that's what you call sin, because he missed what he's supposed to shoot at, right? Because I'm such a football fan, if a kicker misses the field goal, not everyone can be Jake, Jake Elliott, right? You're impressed? Not everyone can be Jake Elliott, right? Not everyone can make the field goal in a 60-yard with wind and stuff, right? If a field goal kicker misses the field goal, that's sin. You're missing the goal. You're missing the mission. That's what sin is. You understand? Inequity is immoral behavior. Transgression is breaking oath. Sin is missing the goal, missing the mission for which you were assigned to. That's what sin is. Are you with me? It's more than smoking, more than listening to rock and roll music. It's missing the goal. And what is the goal that God has given every human being. When God has designed a human being, every human being has a specific mission and goal. What is that goal? It is to love God and it is to love people. That's the goal. If you're a human being, you're created with these two goals. To love God and to love others. That's the goal. Okay? Very simple, right? The Bible's definition of love is more than emotional sentiment. It's not the feeling, it's more than a feeling, it's more than a sentiment. The Bible's definition of love is giving respect and honor that is due the other person. Bible's definition of love is giving respect and honor. Are you with me so far? I give an example. John Sexton is the, one of the number one divorce attorneys in New York. Right? Number one divorce attorneys in New York. He's been doing it for 25 years. He's really good at being a divorce lawyer. He loves being a divorce lawyer. I don't know why you would, but he does. And he says, the 25 years, based on his 25 years of experience, the, number one, the most common reason why people get divorced is not adultery, it's not over money. People get divorced primarily because they stop honoring each other. They stop respecting each other. Marriage is supposed to be, you're supposed to be the other person's cheerleader, the other person's support, right? the other person's encourager. But what happens oftentimes is, rather than 
your, your spouse being your number one fan, your spouse becomes your number one critic. And the criticism that, that your spouse have against you is not only just within that relationship. The spouse starts criticizing you in front of other people. That criticism that lost the respect and honor, that's why people get divorced. You understand? What your spouse needs more than else is honor and respect, not criticism and disappointment. Right? Because that's what biblical love is. Honor and respect. So if you're a human being, you're called to respect and honor God and respect and honor other people. That's the goal of every human being. How do you love and respect God and love and respect other people? The Ten Commandments show you how. How do you love and respect God? Number one. Recognize, number one, that there is, a, there is God exists, and there is only one God. And that God is awesome. How do you love and respect God? Recognize there is one God, and he's a living God. He's an all-powerful God. He's the God who unfolds his reality in your life. He is a living God, and you are not him, and nothing else is him. Not your girlfriend, not your children, not your job. Nothing else is God. He is the only God. You recognize that. You humbly bow down before him. That's commandment number one, and that's how you honor God. You understand? How do you honor God? Do not make images, craven images. Do not make idolatrous images. The prohibition against making idolatrous images is do not project your foolish ideas of what God is supposed to be onto the living God. We're all tempted to have our little versions of what we think is God and project our image, image of God onto the real God. Bible says don't do that. God is a separate person. He exists. He has a personality. He has a character. And we do not get to decide who God, what God should look like. Okay? You honor his name. You honor who he is. You honor God by resting on Sunday. How do you rest on Sundays? By remembering who God is and just basking in the understanding of who he is. That's how you honor God. How do you honor other people? You honor your parents. Don't tell me, God says, that you love human beings if you can't honor your parents. I wish my kids were here. Honor your parents. Number two, respect their boundaries, man. Do not hate them. Do not hate them enough to kill them physically or emotionally or spiritually. Do not use them for your sexual gratification. Don't envy them. Don't lie to them. Respect their boundaries, man. 
That's how you honor people. And that is the mission of every Christian. Respecting God, respecting and honoring other people. And they're connected. Listen, the reason why we should love other people is because other people, no matter who they are, are made in the image of God. You respect them because they're made in the image of God. You understand? The very reason why we respect them is because they're made in the image of God and because they're made in the image of the Holy God. It is our natural calling to respect and honor God's creation. That is why the Bible says sinning against other people is sinning against God. Look, if someone insults you, I will defend you, right? But if someone hurts my kids, I'm going to sue them. I love you, but I'm not going to go litigate for you unless, you know, unless we come into a legal field arrangement here. All right? But for my children, there's a bully who bullied my son when he was in the fourth grade. All morning, I I Googled, researched how to sue bullying parents. Because if you... Hate my, if you damage my children, you're damaging me. Can't you see? Damaging other people is sinning against God. That is why in, in Psalm 51, <clears throat> when David sinned against Bathsheba and, and Uriah, David says, it is only against you that I have sinned. What is he talking about? He's, he He clearly killed Uriah and ruined Bathsheba's life. But David's saying, it is only against you that I have sinned. What he's saying here is, my sin against Bathsheba, my sin against Uriah, it's all just sinning against you. Do you understand? But our sin is, even though those are our mission, loving God and honoring God and loving and honoring other people, We can't not help not love God. We can't not help to not honor people. Sure, we may love and honor people that we find necessary, like our children, like our parents. But it doesn't take much for us to wish the greatest ill on people who inconvenience us. All you road rage rage warriors out there, don't you wish for utter destruction for someone who just kind of cut in your lane? It doesn't take much for us to disrespect, dishonor, Wish, wish ill against another human being. Look, one of my friends in Korea, Korea culture, corporate culture is very weird before COVID, basically. Korean culture, corporate culture is, if you're a man, you go out and you do heshik, right? You, you, you drink with your coworkers. You have dinner with your coworkers. In the second round, you go to this saloon. And this saloon 
It's not saloon in the West. Saloon is these rooms, right, that guys go to. And in these rooms, pretty girls come out, scantily dressed, and they pour drinks to you. And they're super kind to you. Because evidently, we think if a scantily clad, beautiful woman pours us drink, that makes us feel special or something. So that's the common, common culture. My buddy is a Christian. So he went to one of those rooms because that's what his office did. And he said when he, when the girl sat next to him and started pouring him a drink, he felt so bad for her. She said, I used, I, I used to be an actress, she says. But she failed as an actress. And the only way she makes money is being scantily clad and pouring drinks and make nice chit-chat with my buddy. My buddy felt so bad. Not his other co-workers. They were living it up. the utter using of another human being, and they find it no problem. That's sin, you know? You're not supposed to treat each other that way. But we do. We're missing the goal. That's sin. Another aspect of sin is not only do we miss the goal of loving God and loving other people, sin is also, I'll go quickly, is we redefine what sin is. The power of sin is we redefine, we, we are in a delusional mind, and our delusional mind redefines what good and bad is. So we redefine good and bad to justify our sins and to condemn other people. It's weird, but we do that all the time. How do you know? Adam and Eve. Why did Adam and Eve felt? Why did, why did Adam and Eve sin? Because Satan made them think, made them question God's command. Satan made them think they could interpret God's command how they want. According to God's law, you shouldn't eat from the apple. I'm sorry, you shouldn't eat from the tree. But they, they, they reoriented what truth is so that in their minds they were justified in, eating, in eating, eating from the tree. And in their minds, eating from the tree was okay. Somehow in their minds, they justified it so that eating from the tree was okay, was acceptable, even though it's not. Human beings do this all the time. We redefine what good and evil is to justify our own evil, and to condemn other people. How do you know? Bible has it all the time. Apostle Paul, before he met Jesus Christ, he really thought persecuting other Christians, were do he was doing God's work. He thought Jewish religion was true, and everything against the Jewish religion is an enemy. So he had no problem persecuting the Jewish, the Jewish Christians. We do it all the time. We don't stick to what God says, what good and evil is. We redefine it all the time. So that we're innocent and the other guy is a fault. 
You can see this in political conservative versus liberal YouTube channels. They're going at it because conservative things, they're right, and the Democrats are, and the liberals are evil. The liberals think they're more moral. The conservatives are fascist Nazis. Conservatives call liberals communists. The liberals call conservative fascist Nazis. Liberals think that they're right. Conservatives think that they're right. They redefine what good, or good and evil is based upon their perception, and they have no problem judging against people. Isn't that what we do when we fight against our spouse? Let's be honest. I'm in the right because I arrange it in my mind that I'm right. And according to the rearrangement, I'm right and you're wrong, husband, wife. That's what sin does. And that's what people do all the time. The presidents of Yale, University of Pennsylvania, MIT, they got in hot water because they said anti-Jewish anti speech in their campus is not really harassment, but anti-speech against blacks, LGBTQ population, and Palestinian. That's harassment. They pick and choose which group is protected under harassment and which group against harassment and which group is innocent. They pick and choose, you see. We do it all the time. Human beings do it everywhere, everywhere, all at once, all the time. Third thing about sin, the Bible says, it is a power that rules over us. The power that wants us to follow our desires and self-interest. Paul describes in Romans chapter 7, he says, there is a power within me. I know what I ought to do, and I know what I ought not to do, but there is this power within me that compels me not to do the right thing and for let me do the wrong thing. There is a power, a force, that is motivating me to choose self-interest over, over righteousness. Human beings have that power. Human beings are not people who are governed by their reason. Human beings are people who are governed by their impulses. And their impulses, even though you may think that you are a reasonable, nice person, at the end of the day, human beings are driven by impulses and selfish desires. Look, the entire... The world right now, American left, progressive left, thinks communism is a really good idea. The underlying premise of communism is communism doesn't believe in private property, right? Communists believe the, 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 all the evils of society is because of private property. Communists believe man is an economic man. But if you just take away the economic motivation of man, if you take away their private property, and let everyone own things together, then human beings will just take what they really need, right? So that other people can share, so, and other people can have what they need, and so that we can just give back. After we use what we need, we can give it back. Communists believe it's possible where everyone can own everything together, and people will only use what they need and give back what they don't need. 
That's what communists believe. Is that true? When COVID hit, when the toilet paper shortage happened, did people only take a couple of rolls? Did they? No. They're in it for themselves, man. That's what human beings are. The world is messed up because people fall at the, people fail at the goal that God has, God has called them to do. They rearrange what right and wrong is in their minds all the time to judge other people. And they're driven by impulses and desires. Tell me this is not humanity. And tell me this is not a human being. Isn't it? It is for this that Jesus Christ has come to save. All of us are this way. And the only way that we can change people who are prone to this type of mindset into a per people who our mindset is focused on God is for us to have a new heart. Listen to me carefully. Christianity is not, real, is not saying all you need is better teaching. If you just have better teaching, then you will be a Christian and you will, you know, you'll be a mature Christian. We don't believe in the power of education. We believe that in order for you to love God and love people, your nature has to change. Look, I have glaucoma, and I don't, my peripheral vision is getting like narrower. And it's because the optic nerves of my eyes are, 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 are diminishing. My optive nerves are very narrow and thin. And there's no medicine that can restore my vision. There isn't any. The only way that I can get new vision to see clearly, perfectly, is for me to get new eyes. The way you are free from the destiny of, destiny of, destiny of sin is you need new eyes. Because the old eyes that we have are not able to see God, are not able to see what true, true right and wrong is, are not able to see that we're driven by impulses. We're blind to that. You need new eyes, you see. And Jesus Christ has come to precisely give you new eyes. How does he give you new eyes? Through his mission in this world. Why did Jesus come? Jesus, Jesus Christ came to be the perfect man, basically. We say Jesus Christ, is, Jesus Christ did not sin. What we mean by this, listen to me carefully, when we say Jesus Christ did not sin, it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus Christ didn't have premarital sex or didn't smoke. That's not what it means. It means that Jesus Christ perfectly completed the mission of a human being. What is the perfectly complete, what is the mission of every human being? To love God and to love other people. 
Jesus Christ was the only man, only human being, who perfectly honored God and who perfectly loved people. That's what it means for Jesus to be, Jesus to be sinless. He obeyed God, even though Satan tempted him not to obey God, even though his flesh tempted him not to go to the cross. Jesus, until the very end, submitted himself to the will of God the Father, and he went to the cross. The cross symbolizes Jesus' perfect obedience to the will of God. Once again, Jesus Christ is a perfect human being because he perfectly obeyed God, and the cross is a representation of that. He perfectly obeyed God. Remember, Garden of Eden, God told Adam, Hey, Adam, you can eat from anything in the garden, but obey me about that tree. And Adam said, uh, No. Jesus has nothing in this world. And God said, Hey, Jesus, obey me about the tree. And Jesus said, The cross is Jesus saying, I obeyed God. But the cross is not only the fact that Jesus obeyed God, but he loved people perfectly. Jesus Christ was born a servant. And he spent his life here as a servant. And he died as a servant. His love for human beings was perfected. When he, when he died for their sins on the cross. Every human being failed at God's design. And because they failed, there's consequences to their failures. But Jesus Christ, rather than, people, rather than having people, letting people pay for their failures, he paid for their failures by being their sin on the cross. Do you understand? The cross is Jesus embracing our failures and embracing the judgment that is due our failures and dying for us on the cross. That's perfect love. So the cross is God, Jesus' perfect love for the Father, and Jesus' perfect love for human beings. Jesus completed the goal. And because Jesus completed the goal, God raised him up. And gave him a new life. And what Jesus does is he, the life that the new life that he received from God, the new life he received from God, he gives it to his people. We have new eyes because Jesus Christ gave us his new life to us, and that new life comes with new set of eyes. You understand? He was raised to life, and he gave his new life to his people. And the new life that he gives to his people comes with new sets of eyes. Eyes that see God. Eyes that want to obey God. Eyes that want to, want to obey, do not want to obey our sinful compulsions, but want to obey God. That's the new nature that God has given to all of us. And that's how you know whether your Christianity is built on something that is true. Do you have new eyes? Do you know that your objective in life is to love God and love people? Is that what's motivating you to live your life? 
Do you believe there's an established right and wrong? And that right and wrong is independent of how you think about things, feel about things. There's a right and wrong, and God has established it. With new eyes, you're able to see that right and wrong, and you want to obey that right and wrong. Do you have that? New eyes means you don't, you, 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 you distrust your impulses and senses. You know your impulses and senses are bad. Look, Beckett Cook, the guy that I quote all the time, former gay homosexual, converted miraculously. After his conversion, the impulses of homosexual desire that he once thought was natural, he now considers not good. That kind of a thing. That's what Jesus has come to do. And Jesus is continuously working that in us. We're not perfect by any means. We're weak, yeah? But Emmanuel means he is with us. Constantly renewing us, building us, constantly refreshing our eyes so that we can become these people that God has designed us to be. And he helps us. People often ask me, I think Joanne asked me yesterday, how do you do it? How do you spend time with God with the busy schedules that you do? I almost gave her the right answer, but I couldn't because we had to start the, start the dinner, right? The answer is this. The reason I, com- I am compelled to pray is because if I don't pray, I don't get my eyes refreshed. If my eyes aren't refreshed, I'm trapped in my thoughts. God is with me, and the way that I know that he's with me is he constantly refreshes my eyes. Guys, sometimes, the other day, I had a nervous breakdown. I really did. But even after the nervous breakdown, in prayer, he restored my eyes. Emmanuel means he is with you. He's going to do it. And that's his primary mission. I hope that you view your Christianity in that light. I hope that you see the necessity of revised eyes all the time. And I hope that you're convinced that the Holy Spirit is real. And the Holy Spirit does what he promised to do, which is to refresh your mind of the truth. I pray that this Advent season will remind you of the mission of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. We ask us this morning in this season of Advent, what is your...